Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Louis Torres. In my many travels, I always have the pleasure of sitting next to interesting people. In one of my particular travels, I discovered that I was sitting next to a lady in charge of all the apparatus at Pointer Space to see if there's life out there. When she told me that she was a scientist and that she uh, was in charge of all the apparatus pointing to space if there's life out there, I just informed her that she was too late. And she looked at me quite uh, amazed that I would say that to a scientist. And I said, uh, you're wondering if there's life out there. And I said, the Bible already tells us there's life out there. So I shared with her Job chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, which says the sons of God came together for a special meeting with God. Then I said, you folk are trying to build a city in space. She said, that's correct. I said, you, all, you were too late again. And I said, God says in the Bible that there is a city in space, and it even has a name called uh, New Jerusalem. And I said, it's not too long ago that you scientists discovered how to make transparent gold. She said, don't tell me. I said, yes. The Bible also tells us 2,000 years ago that there was such a thing as transparent gold. And that's from Revelation chapter 21, verse 18, as you can notice in verse 21. And so she said to me in response, this is amazing. She said, can I share something with you? I said, go on right ahead. She said, my brother just became one of the born-again things. And he invited me to go to his church. So I attended the church. The pastor sat us in a circle, placed Bibles on our laps, asked us to turn to a certain page, and then asked us to read about the content of that chapter, and give our impressions. She said it was something about some bones. And she said, I was just amazed that people would sit like this, trying to figure out something about bones and give impressions. And then she said, if that's all that the Bible has to offer, who needs it? But she said, I never knew that the Bible was a scientific book. And she said, as soon as I get home, I'm going to buy a what? A Bible. Now, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There's a lot of scientific research being done and going on even at present. Uh, they're trying to figure out questions that have disturbed them for a long time. However, every time they study, they unearth something that shakes them up and points them to the reality that maybe they've made a mistake. But that's hard to admit when you're getting paid thousands of dollars per month just to try to chase down some hypothesis and discover whether or not it's true. But listen, recently... The famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawkins uh, several years ago made a statement, and this is what he said. 
I fear that since the evolutionary process has worked through the dialectic of determinism and aggression, our long-term survival and any hope for our species is in question. However, if we can keep from destroying each other for the next 100 years, sufficient technology will have been developed to distribute humanity to various planets. And then no one tragedy or atrocity will eradicate us all at the same time. So the astrophysicist feels that there is some hope. And the hope is, is in leaving planet Earth and finding other planets that can inhabit human life. As recent as last year, uh, he was actually uh, transmitted through uh, technology to the opera house in Sydney. He was in, near London. Uh, and he was projected on the stage as a halogen uh, by technology. And again, this particular time, he made another uh, statement. I don't think we will survive another, what, 1,000 years without escaping beyond our fragile planet. So first he says, Within 100 years, enough technology will be dis discovered to take us to different planets so that we will not be destroyed all at once. And then he says that even this planet will not survive more than what? Than a thousand years. Now, if you know the scriptures, if you know the Bible, uh, you realize then that this man is saying things that he doesn't understand he's saying. But we do. What's amazing is this, that scientists are trying to figure out how to take some of us off to different planets so that the human race is not destroyed. Question, how much hope do scientists have for this earth in reality? None. That's the truth. How much? Zero. That's the truth. However, what they are suggesting leaves us completely hopeless because not, not one of you will be around a hundred years from now. How many? Zero. Not one of you can participate with that hope that they are presenting to get you off the planet. Now, the question then is, is time running out for planet Earth. And I'm going to share with you from the scientific perspective what the Bible has told us all along. Are you ready? Let's take the trip. First of all, uh, are there galaxies out there that have planets that can sustain life? That's a question. Because they're suggesting that we need to go to other planets. Correct? Are there planets there that can sustain life? And what's interesting is this, that recently, in fact, in 1995, they decided to point the Hubble telescope in a certain direction and fix it in a dark spot the size of a dime. How big? The size of a dime that you can look at at 75 feet. So how big does that dime look at 75 feet? If you hold it in your hand, it's pretty small. If you look at it at 75 feet, 
It even gets much smaller. So they focus on that little tiny spot to see if there was anything in that dark spot. Here's what they discovered. Here's the picture of it. And here's what they discovered. About 1,500 galaxies are visible in this deep view of the universe. How many galaxies? 1,500. Taken by allowing the Hubble uh, telescope to stare at the same tiny patch of sky for 10 consecutive days in 1995. The image covers an area of sky only about the width of a dime viewed from 75 feet away. So now they know that beyond what they can see, there are galaxies and galaxies and galaxies out there, which means then that there must be planets and planets and planets and planets. So that immediately raised high hopes on the scientific community that they should be able to find a planet out there. Now, however, as they have done their search, they're beginning to question. Beginning to do what? The question. So in a Wall Street Journal uh, article that came out in December 28, 2014, uh, it began to explain a lot of what I'm going to share with you. That Wall Street Journal was actually, uh, article was actually issued just before Christmas on December. And so here's what was the gist of it. In 1966, astronomer and famous promoter of science, Carl Sagan, announced that there were two requirements for life to be possible on the planet. How many? Two requirements. So if they can find a planet that meets those two requirements, then whammo, there is life out there. So based upon this premise, they set something up called SETI. SETI is actually uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, S-E-T-I. So now they're looking for planets that would meet these two parameters. The two parameters are, number one, there must be a star like our sun. Number two, a planet a certain distance from the sun. So if you can find another planet that is close to another star like our sun, then there is potential for life. And so on that basis then, they estimated that since there's an estimated uh, amount of stars out there, 10 to the 27th power, roughly a one octillion of planets should exist in all of these stars. So now they're saying, we discovered a, a mine. There are all of these galaxies, which means there must be all of these planets that meet the condition for life. And so, they uh, established this thing called SETI, and they uh, put millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars 
on the apparatuses that would somehow be able to catch some signal from one of those planets to be able to start communicating with them. However, once they established that and began to listen, uh, they were surprised that in 70 years, how many years? 70 years, there has been how much response? Zero response. The silence is deafening. So with all those apparatuses pointing up to space, hoping to somehow get some signal from out there, with all of those planets that have the potential of having life, septillion of them, surely somebody would be responding or sending us some signals. But zero response. Well, after a while, uh, they shut down the program. The government, the U.S. government, decided not to fund SETI any longer. But there were private people who decided to keep it going. So it's still going on because the scientist that I met on the plane was about three years ago. So the program is still going on. They're still hoping that there is some signal from outer space and uh, that there is life out there on one of those planets. But after 70 years, you think that we'd give it up. Well, the Wall Street Journal then, as they had accepted this article submitted, the article then said that rather than two parameters or two conditions for life to, to uh, be able to be on a planet, they discovered over 200 parameters since 1995 that must be met. And by the way, they must be met at the same instant, at a one millionth of a second instant, in order for the thing to happen. So there must be 200 parameters happening instantly in order for there to be life on the planet. Well, two parameters was, was a goal. But as they began to discover another parameter, another parameter, another parameter, they began to disqualify, 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 until finally they came up with 200 parameters, and that meant then that it says, in the light of new findings and insights, it seems appropriate to put excessive euphoria to rest. This is Peter Schenkel. He says then, it seems appropriate to put what? Euphoria to rest. What he's saying is that we were all excited when Sagan said that there are only two parameters and there's life out there. But as the parameters increased, the hope that there was life out there is zero. So he says then, in light of the new findings and insight, it seems appropriate to put excessive euphoria to rest. We should quietly admit that the early estimates no longer are tenable. So think of it. Astrophysicist Hawkins says that our hope is to get off the planet and go to other planets. The 200 parameters suggest that there are no other planets. 
So if the only hope you have is to get in a rocket and go someplace, where are you going to go? So, as factors continue to be discovered, the number of possible planets hit how much? Zero. And kept going. In other words, the odds turn against any planet in the universe supporting life, including our Earth. We should not be here. So pinch yourself. Are you here? You should not be in existence, according to the parameters. So you must agree with me that things look pretty dismal out there. That if you are a person that has no faith in anything else than evolution or science, you have zero hope. How much? Zero hope. I was in another uh, plane, and a scientist who was behind me, when I responded, when I, he said, we're in the wrong line because we were waiting, and the person was taking too long a time, and he said, we're in the wrong line, and I turned around, and I said, no, we're in the right line, we're just here at the wrong time. And so he, he said, and what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a pastor. Tell me, why are you people so afraid of evolution? Oh, I said, I'm not afraid of something that doesn't exist. What, he said? And he began to attack religion. The lady said, next, and I was glad to hear that word. Next. <laughs> so I disappeared. I got my boarding pass, disappeared, and got on the planes. They upgraded me, so I was thankful for that. Sat down, became comfortable in the chair. And as soon as the plane reached 30,000 feet up in the air, all of a sudden I had somebody looking at my face. I felt that presence, you know, open up my eyes, and who do you suppose it was? It was a scientist. And he said, now tell me, why are you people so afraid of evolution? And I again explained it to him. So, if all you have is faith in evolution, and I hope that those people who are listening out there because there are a lot of sincere people, like myself, who when I was young, only understood evolution as an answer to life. That's all I was taught in New York City, was evolution. And so, there are a lot of sincere people who have been uh, so fed this evolutionary theory that they have believed it, sincerely. But I pray as they listen that this presentation may help to clear up the reality that there is no hope in that ideology. So let's continue. Dr. Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, compiled 200 parameters that must be met by any planet that could possibly support life, such as us. That was over 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, over how many? 200 parameters, which means that they're still what? They're still finding other parameters. I'm just going to go over a couple of them. In order for a planet to be able to sustain life, it has to be in a spiral galaxy. What kind? 
a spiral. Now you may say, you mean there are other kind of galaxies? Yes. There are other galaxies that are different shaped. But this one, ours, is a spiral galaxy. Okay? So it has to be a certain size, not too big, not too small. It will have to be a certain age, not too old, not too young. These facts will eliminate an estimated 90% of galaxies as candidates for a planet that could support life. So just number one has eliminated how many? 90% of galaxies that can support life. Number two, the planet would have to be situated in the right location in the galaxy. It cannot just be any place in the galaxy. It has to be precisely in the right location in the galaxy. It has to be located in a narrow region between the spiral arms of the spiral galaxy. So, the galaxy spiral, let me show you a picture of a spiral galaxy. Here it is. This is the Milky Way. This is where we live. The arrow points to you where you are in that galaxy. Okay? So, it has to be in the right location within a certain limit of that galaxy in order for a planet to have or sustain life. Okay? So the planet has to be situated in the right place. Then, the galaxies that are much bigger than our Milky Way, radiation levels are likely to be too high for an Earth-like planet to support advanced life. Number four, the star around which a life-bearing planet must be a single star. And what kind of star? A single star. In other words, about 75% of the stars in our galaxy are not single stars. 75% of the stars in our galaxy are twin stars, double stars. So, if that planet is with two suns, it cannot support human life. So, 75%... In our galaxy, that means that only at least 25% of possibility that in one of those stars there could be a planet that could sustain life. So we're down to uh, narrowing the numbers significantly just with two parameters. Number five, it must be a very specific mass. Stars that are slightly more massive than our sun burn too quickly and too erratically to maintain life support even for a planet at just the right distance. So it not only has to be the right sun at the right place, the right location, the right galaxy, the right kind of galaxy, it also has to uh, be the right size, the right mass, in order to support uh, a, a uh, planet that can support life. Number six, stars that are slightly less massive than the sun will not work either. So if it's too big, it won't work. If it's too small, it won't work either. All right? The smaller the mass of a star, the less energy it radiates, and the closer in the planet must be in order to be able to maintain a range of temperatures suitable for life. So you can see so far that we are narrowing the scope. Number seven, Earth has maintained itself in this narrow range of temperatures suitable for the development of, of advanced life. If life originated and developed in strictly naturalistic processes, one wonders how these blind processes could have possibly anticipated the physics of star or solar burning. In other words, how do these things that don't think figure out how to be precise in the right place so that there could be a planet 
to inhabit life. We continue. The earth is at a certain tilt. 23.5 degrees in the axis. The tilt of the earth spins with respect to the planet of its orbit about the sun. All right? It's important for a habitable earth. The earth spins axis is tilted at 23.5 with respect to the ecliptic, giving moderate seasons and preventing temperatures extremes anywhere on the planet. So if the earth were not tilted the way it is, then it would be too hot in one place and too cold in another place. So because it is tilted just right, it is never too hot or too cold in any place on the face of the earth. So it's not just having to have a planet that's the right size. It has to be the right tilt. So tell me, how did an earth that has no brains figure out how to be at the right tilt so it could have life? The planet also has to be close to a sister planet nearby like Jupiter. In other words, it cannot survive in space by itself. A planet like Earth has to be close enough to another planet big enough to absorb all the different uh, projectiles that are flying through space. So, if it were not so, we would have been decimated a long time ago. But what happens is, because Jupiter is so large, its orbit actually draws any asteroids that, are, that may be coming to the Earth, and it goes toward Jupiter and gets absorbed over there. So, if you don't have a planet small with a planet big, then that planet small would be no planet at all. It has to be the right distance, etc. Now, what's interesting is this, that recently they have discovered a potential planet that may support life. And uh, here it is. It's called Kepler. 452b. The problem is that that planet that they thought or think that may be able to sustain life is actually at a distance of uh, 1,400 light years away. How far is it? 1,400 light years away. Now, that presents a, a real challenge which means that we're not going to get there too soon. Why? Here's uh, light travels. A light year is the speed that light travels in a year. And how many of you remember your science class where they told you that light travels at a speed of about 186,000 miles per second? How many of you remember that? How many of you don't remember that? That's okay. Maybe you didn't attend the same science class that I did. So light travels how fast? 186,000 miles per second. A light year then is the distance that light at that speed travels in a year. Okay? So here it is. I've multiplied it out for you just uh, to do the mathematics. If you can see then that if you uh, travel, light travels in one minute, it goes six million, 11 million miles in one minute. If it uh, travels for one hour, it goes 669 million miles. But if it travels 24 hours, 
Then we're talking about billion. And if it travels for 30 days, then we're talking about the trillions. And then, of course, we're, there's no way we're going to be able to resist distance even in one year. But that star that they think they found is 1,400 light years away. Question. What are the chances that any human being will get there? The fastest that our spaceships travel through space is about 29,000 miles per hour. So, you make the math and you'll discover that it'll take you many, many, many lives in order for you to be able to reach that planet that's supposed to be able to support life. Jeremiah 31, verse 37 says, Thus saith the Lord, If heaven above can be what? Measured. And the foundations of the earth search out beneath. So God is saying that heaven is so broad that nobody can measure it. Now, how did the writers of the Bible know that? when there was no telescope and no way to actually put a Hubble scope up in space to discover that there was 1,500 1, galaxies in a space the size of a dime out there. Obviously, the master astronomer had to inspire the Bible writers. What do you say? But let's continue on. Possibilities of space travel. Since they're suggesting that you have to travel to space, what's the possibility? And uh, here it goes. Near-Earth space itself is about 350 degrees, 56 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. That is, that if you're in space and the sun is not shining on you, the temperature is 356 degrees below zero. However, on the other hand, if the sun is shining on you, then the temperature is 239 degrees Fahrenheit, hot. Question. In order for you to survive in space, can you go as you are? What's the answer? No. You will either become an instant icicle or you will be instantly incinerated. So in order for anybody to get into space, they're going to have to have specialized equipment to protect them. Not just from the sun, but from radiation and from other things that are out there. So just with the temperature alone, the chances of human life surviving out there is what? Zero. Earth is the only planet as we know of, that has an atmosphere that has the ability to protect us against many things. Asteroids, radiation, etc. And the extremes are hot and the extremes are cold. Aren't you glad that we live on planet Earth? Listen. Humans to venture into the environment of space can have negative effects on the body. So let me give, give these to you. Number one, 
Significant adverse effects of long-term weightlessness include muscle atrophy and deterioration of the skeleton. So you go up six feet four, you come back shorter. Number two, other significant effects include a slowing of cardiovascular system functions. Number three, decreased production of red blood cells. Number four, balance disorders. Number five, eyesight disorders. Number six, weakening of the immune system. Number seven, additional systems include, or symptoms include, fluid redistribution, causing the moon face appearance typical in pictures of astronauts. And number eight, loss of body mass, nasal congestion, sleep disturbance, and excessive flavulence. So when you consider just these, you already know that you're in trouble. Which means then, that if you're going to take a space flight, which right now they're trying to build a hotel in space, you knew that, right? It'll just cost you a few million dollars to get there. But they're making a, a hotel in space, you're hoping, so that people can take a flight to space and stay, stay there a day or two or so forth and come back. It means then that you have to have the specialized equipment to be up there and a specialized equipment to get up there, and a specialized equipment to get back, which is pretty costly. And if you get there, then there are challenges, health challenges. An average lifespan for a tank of oxygen is between six to eight hours. One of the most dangerous places on an astronaut uh, is the launch and reentry of the rocket. A lot of rocket fuel for reaction uh, mass and energy is required to attain even a low Earth orbit. The spacecraft needs to get up to at least 7 miles per second or 25,000 miles per hour, which is a very scary and dangerous speed. And by the way, if you happen to get into space and you have one of those strings tied to you, fetter, and you're doing a spacewalk, you know, if for some reason you get detached from that fetter, uh, all you need is just a small nudge and you accelerate up to about 25 to 29,000 miles per hour. So the chances of anybody catching up with you, if that happens to you, is nil. And once you reach that speed, even if they shot a rocket to try to catch up with you, they'll never be able to catch up with you because you're still traveling at the same speed that they're traveling, and you only will survive six or eight hours anyway. So your chances of existence out there is how much? Zero. Well, they're thinking now, maybe Mars. We can travel to Mars. And they made a film recently about Mars. How many of you have heard of that film? Somebody who lands on Mars and all the things in Mars. Well, it's kind of silly, but unless if you don't know the science, you think, well, it's probable. Possible. If you know the science, you know that a person flying uh, at 25,000 miles per hour, it's not just going to be caught by somebody grabbing your hand, pulling you in. How many of you can catch a ball at 100 miles per hour? And if you have no, no uh, catchment system, how easy is it to catch something going at 200 miles an hour, let alone going at 25,000 miles per hour? So all that science uh, Hollywood does is that it portrays things that they hope could be possible. The reality is that true science reveals it's not possible. Well, 
To get to Mars, at the speed that I'm talking about, will take you about 200 days. I looked last night, and I could see Mars, and I could see Jupiter. How many of you could see both planets last night? I'm glad to see there's some star casers here. To get to Mars, which is the closest at this point, will take you about 200 days. So first you have to get there in 200 days, which means you have to have enough supplies to last 200 days. And once you get there, you have to have enough supplies to come back 200 days. So already you're over a year that you're gone. Plus, you have to have supplies for over a year. So the chances then of you being up there and surviving in Mars means that it's possible only if they keep on sending rockets consistently going up there to reach you when, you're, when your ammunition is about ready to expire. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in that situation. So, Hawkins said, that in a thousand years, the earth will not exist. The amazing thing about these scientists is that they're discovering things that they just simply misinterpret. It's like the scientists that were talking to me, talking to me about evolution. He said, you can't deny that embryos don't have gills. And I said, the problem is that you take that information and you interpret it as evolution. I take that information and interpret it as intelligent design. I said, it's simple. You take the stratus of the earth and you have small, bigger, 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 and you interpret that evolution. We take that and interpret it as a flood. He said, what do you mean? It's simple. You take pebbles or rocks of different sizes, put them in a bucket, spin them, and let them settle down. Which settle down to the bottom first? Which do you think? The bigger or the smaller? Which ones? How many of you say small? Can I see your hands? How many of you say big? Can I see your hands? How many of you don't want to raise your hand? All right, see that. All right? <laughs> it's okay to be careful, but don't be too careful about things. <laughs> the truth of the matter is that what settles first are the smaller ones. And then the bigger and the bigger and the bigger. I said to him, that's why you have, you have fossils of fish on top of mountains. Because there was a worldwide flood. So I said, you, know, you, take, you take that information, you interpret it this way. We take the same information and we interpret it this way. And so, Hawkins said 1,000 years. Now, those of you who know the Scriptures know two things. Number one, that in order for you to have hope, you must get off the earth. You must what? Get off the earth. You will not survive on this planet. That's what the scientists are saying. But they're only confirming the Word of God. Because Jesus said, I must take you off the earth. But he said it in these words. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in 
God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and do what? And take you off the planet. And do what? And take you off the planet. So that where I am, there you may be also. And by the way, so that you'll know, the Bible establishes that there's travel faster than the speed of light. Did you know that? You don't know that. And many things that the Bible establishes, most of us don't catch it because we're not thinking of science. But it's clear. You read Ezekiel, you'll see that it says that the angels fly in a flash of, a, of lightning. The what? Flash of lightning. So there's flight in the Scriptures faster than light. God says that you are going to have to be get off, get, getting off the planet. But he also had made the provision. Think of the science behind us, okay? He says that when he comes, something's going to have to happen with your bodies. Because presently you are not capable in your shape and the form that you have to get into space. God will have to do something miraculously to make you capable of taking that flight. And the Bible makes it plain that it says you will be changed in a what? In a moment, in the twinkling of the eye. When? At the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall be raised incorruptible. Then this corruption shall put on what? Incorruption. Which means that you will not be able to be corroded again. I didn't hear anybody say amen about that. Just think of it. No more wrinkles, ladies. Then it says, and this mortal which means you are subject to what? To death. Shall put on what? Immortality. Can you see what's happening? The Bible, scientifically speaking, gave us the answers to our hope. Science who doesn't believe in God leaves you with the only idea that perhaps there's a planet out there that we can escape to. God says... Yes, you must escape. The planet would not last. Sin and its corrupting influences are destroying the planet and destroying us. God must do something to rescue the human race. If God doesn't do it, there's no hope for us. Are you hearing me? Therefore, praise the name of Jesus that He's given us inspiration through His Holy Word, scientifically explaining to us that the moment will come when you'll be able to fly. And I praise God for that hope. What do you say? What a blessed hope. For we say unto you by what? By the word of the Lord. Yes, this holy book that a lot of people disdain and, and, and uh, criticize, etc. In here, you find the hope for humanity. And it says... For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we, sh we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not go ahead of them which are dead. 
For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Think of it. For centuries people thought you could not fly, therefore they didn't believe what Jesus says in his book, that he ascended to heaven. And the disciples stood up there looking on up to heaven. Do you remember that? And the angel said, you man of Galilee, why are you standing up looking up to heaven? The same Jesus, which you have seen go up into heaven, shall come back in the same manner as you've seen him go. See, for centuries people mocked that. Impossible. How can you do that? Now we know that it is possible. Men are traveling back and forth to space. Not as many as God will take. So we now know that it's possible to get off the planet. True? We also know it's not possible to live in space. So the Lord himself, and it says with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. There's another miracle. The idea that people can live again. What scientists are trying to figure out, what they're hoping to do with Stephen Hawkins is, is freeze his body so that when enough technology is developed, they can uh, kind of unthaw him and there, poof, he'll be back alive. If they would only accept the blessed writings of the Scriptures as the only hope. But I want to tell you something interesting. In April, when Stephen Hawkins was asked, and he made the statement about a thousand years, they asked him if there was a God, and he said, no. There's no God. However, in July... He changed his tune. In July, he shocked the scientific world by saying that some master intelligence has organized things. Science, at least those who are sincere, are beginning to see a different perspective than they have been brainwashed to believe. And that is that there is a divine being who provides hope for the world. And that hope is for you and for me. And what about the earth existing a thousand years? What does the Bible tell us? The Bible says that when Jesus comes, we will be in heaven for a thousand years, and after the thousand years, what will happen to the earth? It shall be destroyed. So Stephen Hawkins is right on the money without knowing it. So I hope he's listening. Because if he does listen, then when the Creator comes back and he accepts him as his Lord and Savior, he will be restored to his young manhood and be able to function again as God is able to do for all those who love him and trust in him. The same one who walked in Galilee is still able to heal people. What do you say? But... While your healing may not take place here, it certainly will take place when the Master returns. What a blessed hope. What do you say? For the Bible says, Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. But that day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. By the way, they found out how cold it can get. They have not found out how hot it can get. I think the coldest that it can get on earth is 457 degrees below zero. 
But they've already discovered that there's heat that's beyond 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So what the Bible says is true. The earth will melt with what? Fervent heat, which means that it's going to have to be a hot fire. What do you say? And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burnt up. Then, brethren, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and what? And hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Psalms 4, 146, verse 3, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is how much? No help. Our only hope is for the Lord to return. That's the only hope. There is no other place that you can place your hope in. Science is only confirming what the blessed Word of God has declared to us for centuries. It's too bad that we have to wait for science for us to believe. I remember when I was a little boy seeing people kind of moving their lips. And when we saw people moving their lips, we would do this. You understand? How many of you recognize that? I don't know if our kids today understand that signal, but in the in Yiddish we used to say, he's Meshigana in the cup. He's what? Meshigana in the cup. It's Yiddish. It means they're crazy. They're crazy. But now nobody thinks people are crazy. Sometimes you go into a restaurant and people are talking. You think they're talking to themselves. No, they're talking on cell phones. Right? You're standing in some place and somebody's talking. You turn around and you think they're talking to you. Or they're talking to somebody. Now nobody thinks people are crazy. Even though we're probably more crazy now than we were before. So people didn't believe in prayer. People thought prayer was something for funny, dirty people who just didn't didn't have anything else to do but to try to think that maybe there was some God, something that they could, you know, hide behind. But now nobody questions the reality that you can talk and that your voice can fly and go someplace. Is that true? There's no question. The difference is this. The talk that you do through your cell phone, you have to pay for time. The talk you do to God is free. And he hears faster than your cell phone can respond. We have a hope in a living God who is the creator of the earth, who's organized all, and gives us the promises that, yes, the earth will be dissolved. Yes, the end will come. Yes, there's no escape in man. But yes, there's escape in God. Maybe there's somebody here who's been struggling with their faith about God. 
And as you've heard this presentation, you realize that what the Word reveals is true. And you can trust God. You can put your life in His care. And He's capable of taking care of you if you'll let Him. Anyone here in the audience who's been struggling with their faith and would like to raise your hand and say, this presentation has increased my faith in my living God. Could you raise your hand to that and say, yes, I understand now better than before that what God says is true and that science is simply confirming the precious promises that God has made. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at all that your precious word tells us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us to put our trust completely in you. And we pray for these scientists who the enemy has led to invent and create and, and uh, forge ideologies that lead people to no hope. And those who are sincere, we pray that you'll turn them to you and in turn that they'll turn thousands to you because they have found you to whom they could trust. And so bless us, keep us faithful, and at last save us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by American Christian Ministries. For more resources like this, visit AmericanChristianMinistries.org or download their free mobile app for Android or iOS. We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. For a long time, the health work has been heavily promoted in our church and central to our evangelistic strategy. Reports today speak of the Adventist Blue Zones and note how Seventh-day Adventists live between six and eight years longer than the rest of the population. The rates of disease such as cancer and heart disease are significantly lower than the rest of the population and some diseases such as lung cancer are almost non-existent. How did this come to be? Was it luck? Was it chance? Or was it something greater than that? In 1863 in Otsego, Michigan, Ellen White was given her health vision where she was shown things that were way ahead of the medical practices of her time. For example, she was shown that tobacco was a slow, insidious, and most malignant poison, common knowledge to us today. Yet in her time, the medical wisdom would have prescribed or at least not deterred you from using tobacco should you have any throat or lung issues. It wasn't until a hundred years later when the Surgeon General of the United States finally condemned the use of tobacco. The vision was very broad in scope and encouraged holistic health and natural preventative medicine. Whilst there is always a need for acute care, preventative medicine seeks to prevent as much as possible disease in the body. 
Under Ellen White's guidance, they set up a health institute called the Western Health Reform Institute. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, today most famous for the world-renowned breakfast cereals that he invented, became the director of this institute at the young age of 24. John Harvey Kellogg attended some of the best medical schools in his day, the University Medical School in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the New York University Medical College at Bellevue Hospital in New York City. He graduated in 1875 and would go on to be one of the leading doctors in the United States, treating both the rich and famous as well as those less fortunate. He changed the name to the Battle Creek Health Sanitarium. Sanitarium is a twist on the word sanatorium, which was a health resort for invalid soldiers. Replacing the O with an A, he thus created a new word for the English language. He would go on to pioneer some of the best medical practices of his day and invent some ingenious machines that were the forerunners of much of the modern equipment you'll see today in a gym, such as this rowing machine and Gripmaster. Many of these were on the Titanic when it set sail for use by its wealthy passengers. The sanitarium would start out as a great witness to the message that God had given, but it would later veer off track. Unfortunately today, this message has often been neglected. And while many recognize that we do have a message and understand the truth and validity of it, many people do not live up to what they know about health. The health work was created to be the right arm. It was to assist the gospel, not to be isolated on its own, but to work harmoniously together. Healthy living was not to be an end in itself, but its purpose was to work with the gospel, creating an opening wedge to people's hearts. May we implement these principles first in our lives and then also in the churches we are a part of as we witness to the communities we live in. more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.